I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City. And today I'm joined by Norm Van Aden Petersman, who recently joined Strong Towns as their member advocate. Norm, did I get your name right? Yes, you <laughs> I did. I got it right. <laughs> well done. It's it's three words and one last name. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, before we go into our story, I wanted to kind of say, first of all, that it's great to meet you. And second of all, that I would love for you to kind of share with the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, what is your role at Strong Towns and kind of how you came to find Strong Towns? Yeah, thanks, Abby. I became interested in Strong Towns in 2014 or so, began reading articles about it in connection with what I was doing as a pastor, where I was trying to figure out in in Southern Ontario, the congregation that I was serving was in a smaller town that had a historical sort of core, and yet it felt broken in a lot of ways. I tried to figure out, why is it broken? And as I started reading through Strong Town stuff, I began to see that it was the, the transportation routes of two major strodes that were running right through it. Uh, that were bisecting it or cutting it in parts and making it really difficult to traverse from one side to the other uh, without some measure of an experience where you just think, oh, I'm not sure that I'm going to do that again. And so trying to think that through, what does it look like to have places that are more oriented towards the needs of people uh, led me to Strong Towns. Grayson Johnson's writings on tactical urbanism and other pieces like that uh, really spoke to me at that time. And then I just became more and more passionate about it, tried sharing it with more and more people. Uh, but was always doing so in addition to serving full-time as a pastor. And then just this past July, I started as the member advocate at Strong Towns. And being the member advocate means for me that I get to wake up each day and just go out and find ways to make membership in Strong Towns as an organization, make it more rewarding, uh, make it more engaging for a lot of people, but in other ways to also take the experiences and the achievements of our members and and help that to be plowed into what Strong Towns is doing. We know there are so many cool things that Strong Towns members in across North America, even uh, overseas are doing. And in time, we want to build a what Chuck has called a, a conveyor belt, where we're bringing all of those stories up and out and celebrating them and highlighting them as, as examples of what people are doing in their community. That's great stuff. And I think, you know, it's amazing what Strong Towns has done over the past few years, even just to start kind of highlighting like with the bottom up podcast and, you know, bringing these stories to light of people doing really interesting things. I always wonder, you know, in other cities, you know, how many people are doing things and they may not even really know what Strong Towns is, but they're doing Strong Towns kind of creative work. And so it's amazing to see what people are doing in and out of the Strong Towns movement. And it's exciting that you have joined them. So welcome and welcome to Upzoned. I'm glad you were able to, you know, have your your world premiere on Upzone today. <laughs> I should have gotten a haircut for this. I... <laughs> 
<laughs> That's all right. I need a haircut too. Uh, so don't feel bad. Um, so you brought us an article that is actually from Canada. So it is published in the Globe and Mail by an author named John Lorang. And the title is, Are There Enough Construction Workers to Build the Housing We Need? So the story is based primarily in Toronto, Canada, but I think these dynamics are relevant to probably other places in Canada, certainly areas of the U.S., and it talks about the shortage of skilled trades and labor and how this is impacting our city's ability to develop all the housing that is needed. So a scarcity of trades basically means that the process of building homes is taking longer than expected because everybody is so overbooked. Uh, This dynamic is a situation that existed prior to the pandemic, but has since been exasperated as many people uh, have retired over the pandemic, as immigration flows fell to historic lows in Canada during the pandemic. And despite trades being in such high demand, many of the workers themselves cannot actually afford to build in the places where they are working in and are exceedingly moving further and further out of city centers, namely in Toronto. So the Ontario government has established basically what they say is a need for 100,000 new construction workers and 1.5 million homes over the next decade. And the article reports that there's some optimism coming from government leadership, but industry experts are not as optimistic and don't agree quite as much. Uh, Many trade sectors are are apparently very top heavy. And even though we've seen people retire over the pandemic, there is a, I guess, looming retirement boom to come and just not enough new people who are developing the expertise needed to kind of take over the fields. So that's a big concern. And Ontario is looking towards immigration to address this gap, which is apparently a very competitive chase, uh, you know, at a global level as people are looking for tradespeople. This is one of those stories where it outlines this really acute problem that it almost feels overwhelming to this point that I want to step back and say, like, how the heck did we get here? Why can't we build housing? Why can't we build housing that is affordable? Where did everybody go who can build housing? It's just feels overwhelming. But I think I want to start with maybe the Canadian context. I think that there's a lot of similarities. There are some differences. Is this an issue that is just especially unique to Toronto? What what are the dynamics in the in Toronto that, you know, we should be aware of in Canada's housing crisis in general? If we can start there. Yeah, it's a huge issue across the country, really from coast to coast to coast because In the north, you have the challenge that labor and supplies are both difficult to get uh, because you don't have a large population base. But the real sort of comparable area is certainly uh, along our southern border where the majority of our population live. And the challenge is is that every market has seen ridiculous uh, spikes in prices. And with it, uh, as you mentioned, the ways that uh, construction workers are, are being forced to move uh, further and further away from the projects that they're working on and the places where they're getting called in for work. 
one of the needs that we face is the fact that right now our financialization of housing has created a huge problem. So Toronto is the number one housing bubble in North America and Vancouver is second uh, based on recent analysis that they did. Uh, this means that our housing prices are, are way overvalued and ideally in one sense due for a correction uh, so that way it gets closer to what represents a, a, a norm. But at the same time, we have a government that is committed uh, to maintaining high, high levels of home equity, not wanting to see new grief for people who are already hard pressed because of rising interest rates and challenges that they'll face with household debt and things like that. On top of that, one of the challenges that I keep pressing on in my own community in Delta, BC, is that we have a missing middle uh, types of housing. We don't have the places that our, our uh, incoming premier in BC is describing as workforce housing. Uh, we either have older homes, 60, 70 year old homes uh, that are due for redevelopment, but in time right now, uh, they're still available as somewhat affordable rentals, $3,200 a month, if you can call that affordable for a three bedroom or four bedroom Ooh. home. But the challenge is, <laughs> yeah. is that the the places for people to, to live and work and figure out their craft are really limited. But it's actually tied also to the way that we approach what construction is. We live in the era of mega projects. Uh, I noticed in the article it describes the fact that retail, or I mean residential housing, is is butting up against the construction demands of big transit projects, school projects, water projects, sewage projects, and you almost think I mean a house should not be competing for the same builders uh, with a school, for example. But the reality is that when we think of housing, especially in our, our urban centers, we're not thinking even our townhouse developments are full block rather than smaller incremental uh, infill pieces. And so when I read it, the first thought I had is, isn't there a way for more tradespeople uh, to start out on their own, to do that project that they do in the evenings, they do in the weekends? Right now, they might do a reno for a friend, uh, but it used to be very common to just build a house. My my dad built our home that we lived in while milking, while harvesting crops, while doing a whole bunch of other things. And we had a handyman, Mr. Middlecoop, uh, that would come over and he would assist my dad and the two of them built an entire house in a matter of, I think, six or seven months. Now, the challenge would be that there would probably be bylaw reasons, zoning reasons, why he wouldn't be allowed to do that. And and that creates then this escalation of, of need as well. Yeah, I think that gets to such an important point because, you know, I this is before my time, but I think back to when my neighborhood was built and that was in the 1890s. And I try to think about who were the people who built this neighborhood. It's a very much a neighborhood that was developed in the traditional development pattern. And it was probably built literally by a lot of people locally and not just, you know, a few developers who were in the neighborhood. I mean, it, it's almost as if we we used to have this culture where many people had had the skills needed to do basic construction and that is something that is just not part of our lexicon anymore. It's not part of what we teach kids anymore. And it, it seems that there is some level of trades expertise that should just become like a basic level of, of knowledge. Would you agree with that? I, I do. And it's really interesting you mentioned the ability that we have 
to pick up those types of skills because there's a sense, I mean, shop classes is a great opportunity to learn that or learn that from a friend or a neighbor. Um, but those things are now quite limited. And, you know, I could build a shed, but I probably can't build much more. But when I see these larger projects and especially the government saying, you know, we need 100,000 jobs, we need to build 1.5 million homes, there's this sense of like everything being at such a large scale that they are looking just for exchangeable units of labor. That's very different from considering we need, you know, Sue uh, to build herself a, an accessory dwelling unit and we need Sam to build something else. Uh, we we really are in trapped in this situation where we are missing a lot of that that sort of the stuff that fills the gaps, the people that are are in the places just building that next unit. I said in our our city that we've not allowed the construction of triplexes, quadplexes, walk-up apartments, something that's totally within the realm of most of our builders. We have a lot of really qualified builders, but what they are asked to do by clients is build luxury homes. And they build them really well. And I keep saying to our city council and anyone that will listen, let's get those people building multiple units of housing rather than one unit of housing that isn't really occupied because people don't like to be here in the winter. And so the consequence of those types of, of ways of relaxing some of our zoning bylaws to allow more units on a particular property uh, would also help. It might make the difference. Uh, Chuck just spoke here in Delta. So Delta, for those that don't know, is a suburb of Vancouver built according to sort of the suburb, suburban style development. And he spoke to our city planning staff. And one of the comments that came up after he talked about allowing the next increment by right is... I don't think anybody would build a fourplex in our city. The land is just too expensive. And I, I wanted to immediately say, it's because you don't allow it. Like the, the, it was the sense like no one will do it because no one is doing it. And I said, the reason they're not doing it is because it's not allowed. And so they're trapped in the sense of assuming what the market wants, which is tall towers and then sprawling suburbs. And still in our area, we're still seeing that tall and sprawl pattern. And we need to get away from that. I, I liked how uh, Gordon Price is a, a guy that writes about housing and many other things. He's uh, in Vancouver area. He calls it the grand bargain. High rise density, low scale suburbia, and little in between. And you get some really freakish looking cities as a consequence of that, where you have a, a two story house right next to a 40 story tower. That's really strange. And our, our building pattern shouldn't be like that at all. Yeah, when you described that to me, this tall and sprawl pattern, I, I went to Google and actually looked at it and was like, kind of shocked. I've never seen a development pattern like that. Toronto definitely has this, I mean, tall and sprawl is the perfect way to describe what you will see if you look at aerials of the city, uh, especially three-dimensional aerials. You have these corridors of huge apartment buildings and then literally suburban development pattern all around it, which is a really odd pattern for a city. Um, and, and, you know, your point about just having large scale development as the default and limited abilities for smaller scale developers or smaller contractors to go out on their own and kind of make their own practice, maybe uh, choose their own types of projects that they want to work on. Maybe it's small scale, uh, maybe it's incremental. I mean, that it sounds like that is a real challenge in Canada and not just because of zoning laws. Can you talk a little bit about 
what the challenges what the challenges are there in terms of actually establishing an ecosystem of incremental. Mm. I think part of it is the learning curve. And so one of the challenges for builders, that is, one of the challenges with a lot of our greenfield developments, so developments that are taking place where they just take a farm field in Ontario, they're planning to carve new highways through more rural areas in order to open up the land for housing. But the consequence then is you get these master plan communities built by two or three builders. And my brother worked for a while as a fast framer in Calgary which meant that he would go from site to site to site to site to site, just throwing up houses. But he didn't develop skills in that. He was just one piece in in the machine, a cog making the machine work. And and it's a degraded experience of what it means to be a builder. And so I understand at some level why our trades unions, especially in Canada, have tried to protect a sense of the integrity of the of the work that they're doing and allow for uh, apprentices to move up within the ranks. And yet, even there, there's no pathway for them to start their own shop really easily, uh, to get started just doing a, a smaller project. But I think another missing piece is that we don't have someone, or we don't have easy ways for someone to start just building small units in the backyard. And then moving on to single family homes or duplexes, triplexes, then their first walk-up apartment, then getting into something maybe a little more complex, a whole courtyard and things like that. Instead, we expect a deeply financialized, deep-pocketed sort of developer uh, to have just a legion of subcontractors that do precise planned developments over and over and over again. And that's that's creating a sense where we get a lot of one thing really well, uh, which is quickly built relatively cheap homes on expensive land, but we then lack that that deeper sort of ecology of a place that looks after itself, a place where people can step in and and construct something uh, for their own use uh, really easily. We make it really convoluted for someone to do something uh, for themselves, and so most people don't. And and I think that's certainly one of the challenges that's here. And then. I think of my brother's experience as a fast framer, and it's no wonder he didn't want to keep doing it. The dropout rate for apprentices is is still very high in Canada, uh, despite their best efforts. And I think that there's a similar problem in, in the United States as well. Wow, that's really interesting, especially thinking about, you know, how do you retain workers that are in the labor force? I mean, not even about just attracting them, but actually retaining people who are new to the trades and keeping them in the trades to the point that they can see opportunities to to basically establish a really robust uh, level of expertise. And your point about having a variety of different skills within uh, the trades, uh, I think is very important because people need to have a sense of meaning and not just feel like they are uh, a cog in the machine, just doing one thing over and over and over again for this large financialized system. Your point about, you know, the, the type of housing, it's either, you know, suburban tract housing or, you know, built at a large scale with large, you know, a largely financialized approach, or the same thing, but basically apartment towers. It, it seems to me that, ha- that that lack of variety of housing types, not enabling that within, you know, not just Canada, but it's a huge problem in the U.S. It, it kind of creates this dynamic of like haves and have nots where you have like 
the homeowner class and then, you know, you have the renter class. And of course there's uh, condos and, you know, there's some complexity there, but I don't quite understand why we've made it so complicated for housing to just be adaptable generally, because I live in a neighborhood where (laughs) it was built during a time where somebody said, I'm going to build a single family house on a skinny lot. Uh, I call them proud talls, you know, and then, you know, the next person decides that they're going to build a fourplex and then somebody else builds a corner store and somebody else builds a house with a duplex. I mean, there's so much variety. It's, I mean, for someone who's really interested in cities and urban planning, it's mesmerizing. And we have so many neighborhoods like this all across the country. And it's reflective of a time where housing was just flexible. We allowed things to be adaptable. And in a lot of ways, I'm sure people are just we're probably already seeing our own adaptations all across the continent. People are just doing things, whether the zoning laws are allowing it or not. You know, you're going to get bootleg duplexes or accessory units. Uh, you have kids living with their parents because they can't afford to buy a home, roommate houses, co-housing, all these different types of house hacking. It is that something that you are seeing in Canada or people kind of, finding different ways to all live together despite the our inability to build the housing that we actually need. Absolutely. And I think finally we're starting to see some real change at the provincial level where our for example there's legislation in BC that will uh, require municipalities again this is mirroring what they've done in California requiring municipalities to approve housing based I mean in my mind I think at some level it should be is it a slaughterhouse? No? Okay, it can go next door to you. Like, (laughs) now I know that's a little bit superficial, but that is almost the challenge that we've allowed zoning to sort of expand into this thing. And uh, Mitch Durand-Wood at the Dear Winnipeg site, he's got a great article about a neighborhood full of illegals. And at first you think, oh, what is this? And he's just saying it's building types. They're illegal in a in a strictly zoned pattern uh, as the overlay of zoning, the down zoning that occurred in the 70s is continuing uh, to cause a, a huge impact on, on our communities as, as the impact of that is continuing to be felt. The other challenge that we have in our in our region, for example, in, in the Metro Vancouver region, a household income of less than $100,000 means that you are, if you are a renter or if you're a relatively new purchaser of a home, it means you're, you're rent burdened or you're housing burdened. More than 30% of your housing is going towards rent or mortgage and housing related costs. And the challenge of that is that limits people's participation in so many other things. You have to work extra hours. You can't afford uh, to participate in community activities. You can't uh, engage as deeply in, in various things. Critically for us, we're not people in our situations are not putting money away. But the other responsibility is that, or the other challenge is that it's putting on a government an obligation to consider, do we have to provide housing to everyone who makes less than $100,000 a year? We think that's crazy, but that's what it's become, where then the only viable way to maintain communities of people living in this region who are making less than that is to begin subsidizing their their rent or their housing, you think maybe let's try to bring that scale down, that the level of entry should be 
back at where it used to be uh, and really held on for quite a long time all, until all of a sudden those decisions on, on downzoning, uh, this cutting away of the opportunities for people to build within their own communities began to really escalate uh, that this this yeah, this ladder that just sort of kept building, building, building in terms of uh, the unaffordability problems that we face. And so there was very scapegoatings, oh, it's foreign buyers or it's other pieces. But but the bulk of it has always been these restrictive practices that have been uh, there. And uh, Nathaniel Louster is a, another uh, scholar out here who writes about housing. I think his book's called The Life and Death of the Single Family Home. And he talks about the way that in Vancouver, he does a study of the way that in Vancouver, the the area where now the towers are, that was always considered to be working poor uh, neighborhoods. And it was, they were rough areas, they were by the docks, they were by the mills and things like that. And then they also created the Great Housing Reserve. And so the Great Housing Reserve was part of this grand bargain that, that those that lived in the Great Housing Reserve, primarily white middle-class families, or wealthier, were able to dictate that their reserve would remain the same and they would allow a small portion to be changed. The trouble is because Vancouver is so beautiful, people became interested in living downtown again. And so many of the low-income residents there were moved out, displaced, but they couldn't then be displaced to the nearest neighborhood or to the further, you know, slightly further away. It had to be either out of province or off into the interior. Uh, but now the challenge that even all of our interior cities are, are facing a housing crisis as well. Small towns that can't, people can't find places to live, partly because they still have the old zoning uh, that prohibits people from just adding those three, four or five units onto our, our places. But obviously, it's such a challenge, but I think that uh, there are ways that we can address this. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I think to, to your point, there's lots of kind of little things, adaptations, things that need to change where it's not going to solve the problem overnight. Like this is probably a situation, one of those situations that took us 30, 40 years to get to get here where we are and is going to maybe take that long or longer to actually get us out of it. And I, I think we need to be looking towards adaptations like zoning reform, like trades reform, those sorts of things. And when you look at kind of how the government is presenting on this issue, it is very meta, right? It's very large scale. And I think that that definitely aligns with kind of how you're describing the construction industry generally. We've got to build, you know, over a million units. We need to do large scale development projects to start to chip away at all of these units we need to do. It's a very, you know, it, it's a very, uh, I guess, machine oriented way of thinking about housing and thinking about labor. And it seems that, you know, there is a little bit of hesitation around the ability to just start making our society more adaptable for our societies to stop micromanaging everything and, and, you know, needing everything to be systematic and everything that we do. It's, it's kind of unfortunate. I think we're going to need to be a lot more flexible over the next 50 years. We're going to need to learn to be flexible. We're going to learn how to, as neighbors, be flexible. If somebody has a bootleg duplex next door, maybe we don't need to be upset about it. Um, or, you know, it's like, we just, I, I think we need to learn how to let people be housed, right? 
Absolutely. And I think an example of that that comes to mind is in our community, uh, the city of Delta knew that there was an area near our one of our village cores uh, that was really struggling. It was dilapidated. There was buildings that were that had fallen down. And one of the challenges is that because it was sit, the property or the parcels are right on a dike, which is right next to the Fraser River. And so it's difficult to develop. And so in order to induce development, uh, they they pre-zoned it or they up-zoned it uh, to allow, I think, up to six stories. And I said, why did you pick the hardest parcels to develop and allow them to be upzoned and yet leave every other parcel that's so much easier and leave them as is? And I, I challenged our planning staff. I said, I know that you can make a simple change to the bylaw. You don't have to change the official community plan. You can change just the bylaw to allow accessory dwelling units in every single lot across the city and you could bring it to council it would go through a public hearing process and then it would be approved and it would just be written into our new zone zoning bylaw and they understood they actually have that tool available to them they they can creatively use it or they can just rather you know regularly use it but they have it within their power to up zone citywide they could do this with, with zoning bylaws where they could change it. All it would, it would go through a public consultation process. We would learn it. But if there's a great need, let's take these types of steps. And yet they are looking, how do we attract, you know, immigrant communities or immig skilled immigrant workers from overseas? How do we train 1 million workers? How do we do different things like that? When the reality is we could just start on the ground level opening up a lot of doors and, and then see what happens. I mean, I, I understand we don't want to be socially experimenting all the time, but it's to the strong town's point, it's not a social experiment if we've done this before. If we used to do yes, this, exactly. then we, the experiment this is the way is that we've built for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we just have forgotten that that's really the traditional way of building housing and building neighborhoods and, you know, I, it's it's one of those things where like drastic times uh, call for like a lot of flexibility. And I think that we just all need to learn how to be more adaptable. And we, we need to be throwing a lot of things at this issue. And it can't be, you know, just everything that's large scale and nothing that has to do with small scale, right? It's like, We've got to build just giant buildings everywhere and not, do, you know, allow any other neighborhoods to adapt and freeze them under glass forever. Um, that That is just not a logical way about going about this. And I think we need to be thinking about really what's going to be needed to get us out of this. Really, it's a global housing crisis. It's pretty, pretty incredible. So I think we'll end it there. Uh, but before we end today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been watching, reading, listening to, or anything that's been taking up our time these days. So Norm, I am going to throw it to you. Uh, what have you been up to? Well, my colleague Michelle recommended a podcast called The Real Dictators. And so I've been listening to a podcast about dictators. Uh, the three episodes that I've listened to so far, so far have been about Vladimir Lenin. And it has been fascinating. Uh, stories of, it's, it's really well done. Uh, stories about how he was building a movement and the momentum that began to develop around the time of the First World War, but also like the mistakes that were there. And what I appreciate about it, even as like dastardly as some of these dictators are, the way that it was as a consequence of certain fortuitous events 
the fact that the Russian police didn't pick him up at key moments, or even that in the middle of a war between Germany and Russia, that the German government paid uh, for the train uh, to carry Lenin back to Russia. You think, I mean, how does that happen? And yet uh, they did. And that's uh, how we ended up with uh, the Bolshevik revolution uh, changing uh, the course of uh, modern humanity for us. And so, uh, yeah, so uh, real dictators. It's been really cool. Yeah, well, I am going to need to give that a listen. I've been looking for new podcasts to listen to recently, and I've I've done a couple of like like true crime and horror story ones lately because it's October and have enjoyed that. But it's hard to find. I feel that I'm very particular, but I am not sure what it is exactly that I'm looking for. I just know it when I hear it. So that sounds like a podcast that I would really like. So I'm going to look that up and probably listen to it on my run today. You know, I don't really have like anything in terms of media content to share, I guess, besides my my scary story podcasts. But I just wanted to share that last week I I did quite a bit of traveling. That's why I was out for Upzoned. I went to St. Louis for a conference, drove all the way back to Kansas City, and then went all the way down to this little town called Mountain Home, Arkansas. I went for a wedding and I just wanted to share that it it definitely made me think of like the potential strong town. And I feel like I always visit all of these like little towns where there's clearly a couple of people who are working really hard to like support tourism and to bring people in. There was like this one brewery, it was called Raps Baron Brewing Company that like had live music. It was totally renovated and really well done. It, you know, was a full service type of thing. And just talking with people at the bar, people were saying that they they drove like 40 miles to get there. It's like the one place kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it's just was really fascinating to me. So I wanted to give Mountain Home, Arkansas a shout out just because I had fun going down there. And it's always fun to go to uh, North, really it's it's North Central, but Northwest Arkansas is uh, like gorgeous this time of year. It's just, you know, really pretty leaves and it's in the mountains, the Ozark Mountains. So definitely a very good time. I would recommend it. Sounds idyllic. And, and you drew a nice strong towns lesson out of it. So that's a double whammy. That's great. Always. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely fun to visit these, these little towns and kind of see that like there's people who care about these towns and that are doing things to improve it. And so over the years I've developed an eye for, you know, gifts to the street and, and, you know, small bets and those sorts of things. So definitely, there's definitely people there who are uh, improving the town, which is really cool to see. Thank you, Norm. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hopefully, uh, I can have you back on at some point in the next few months. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks for having me on. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening, and especially uh, as the member advocate, I especially get to say this. I would love to have you join as a member one day, whether that's today or tomorrow or in the days to come. Uh, membership in Strong Towns involves supporting what we're doing, but also building in your community with the resources that we can s- share with you, uh, su- various ways that we can support you. And uh, not only that, but just being part of something really, really fun. So do check it out, uh, strongtowns.org slash membership.
For sure. Thanks, Norm. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thank you. Get down tonight.